calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 19. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction podcast that features stories of an atypical nature. Strange stories by strange authors for strange listeners such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Well, here's the latest news. We here at the Drabblecast have taken things to a new level and changed around our submission guidelines. We feel like we're getting enough listeners now and there's enough interest being generated about this podcast to start hunting out more good authors with real quality Drabble. We've listed ourselves on Rayland.com, a site that gathers numerous publishing sources together for authors to browse and submit to. And we've even decided that if the Drabble is good enough, we're going to chuck a few bucks at it. The spirit of the Drabblecast is still the same as before, though. We'll consider Drabble from anyone. We love publishing stories by the average Joe that breeds chinchillas by day but writes good zombie stories by night. If you want some exposure and free advertisement, not to mention a decent chance of having your story see the light of day, you can mention the fact that you'll let us read your Drabble pro bono and it'll stand a pretty good chance of making it on, if it doesn't suck. But at the same time, we want to bring you listeners good stuff. And a lot of good stuff isn't and shouldn't necessarily be given away for free. So to you writers out there wondering if we're a free market or if we pay, check out the new submission guidelines on the website, http colon forward slash forward slash web dot mac dot com forward slash Norm Sherman. The quick answer is that we're no longer exclusively a free market. We'll negotiate a little bit for a good yarn, you greedy little bastards. Keep in mind, though, that this is a podcast that features a story about robotic orca whales. We may have changed our stance on handling submissions a little bit, but don't take yourself too seriously, because we sure don't take ourselves too seriously. One more week, people. One more week to send in your haikus for the contest. We've gotten some good stuff, but not enough good stuff. 
I know there's some more good haikus out there just incubating, waiting for the perfect moment to just tear through that chest cavity and into my inbox at goatkeeper at hotmail.com. Hell, just write a haiku right now while I'm babbling. It's not like they're hard to write or anything. And remember, if you win, not only will you get way more accolades on the website and forum than you currently have right now, but you'll also get to be a feature character in episode 23 of the Drabblecast. And that's the conclusion of the freaking Black and White Animals Saga. Black and White Animals Saga? What's that, you may ask? Well, let's just say we sent in this story idea to the Fox Network, hoping they'd pick it up as a series, and they rejected it because apparently it would have to have been stretched out into three seasons, and their current policy is to cancel shows this amazing after the first or second season. So, you know, we were disappointed, but what can you do, huh? No, if you really want in on the black and white animals thing, you need to check out Drabblecast episode 11. Tell you everything you need to know. Well, on to today's story, Sredni Vashtar by Saki. Saki was the pen name of British author Hector Hugh Monroe, who lived in the early 20th century. His work is now public domain, and you can find most of it online. And I would encourage you to do that, because it's really great stuff. So I wanted to honor this forefather of drably short literature by featuring one of his stories this week. With reverence and veneration, I present to you Sredni Vashtar by Saki. Conradin was ten years old, and the doctor had pronounced his professional opinion that the boy would not live another five years. The doctor was silky and effete, and counted for little, but his opinion was endorsed by Mr. Ropp, who counted for nearly everything. Mr. Ropp was Conradin's cousin and guardian and in his eyes she represented those three-fifths of the world that are necessary and disagreeable and real, the other two-fifths, in perpetual antagonism to the foregoing, were summed up in himself and his imagination. One of these days Conradin supposed he would succumb to the mastering pressures of wearisome necessary things, such as illnesses and coddling restrictions and drawn-out dullness. Without his imagination, which was rampant under the spur of loneliness, he would have succumbed long ago. Mr. Ropp would never, in her most honest moments, have confessed to herself that she disliked Conradin, though she might have been dimly aware that thwarting him, for his good, was a duty which she did not find particularly irksome. Conradin hated her with desperate sincerity, which he was perfectly able to mask. Such few pleasures as he could contrive for himself gained an added relish from the likelihood that they would be displeasing to his guardian, and from the realm of his imagination she was locked out, an unclean thing which should find no entrance. In the dull, cheerless garden, overlooked by so many windows, which were ready to open with a message not to do this or that, or a reminder that medicines were due, he found little attraction. 
The few fruit trees that it contained were set jealously apart from his plucking, as though they were rare specimens of their kind, blooming in an arid waste. It would probably have been difficult to find a market gardener who would have offered ten shillings for their entire yearly produce. In a forgotten corner, however, almost hidden behind a dismal shrubbery, was a disused tool shed of respectable proportions, and within its walls Conradin found a haven, something that took on the varying aspects of a playroom and a cathedral. He had peopled it with a legion of familiar phantoms, evoked partly from fragments of history and partly from his own brain, but it also boasted two inmates of flesh and blood. In one corner lived a ragged, plumaged Udan hen on which the boy lavished an affection that had scarcely another outlet. Further back in the gloom stood a large hutch divided into two compartments, one of which was fronted with clothes-iron bars. This was the abode of a large polecat ferret, which a friendly butcher boy had once smuggled, cage and all, into its present quarters, in exchange for a long-secreted hoard of small silver. Conradin was dreadfully afraid of the lithe, sharp-fanged beast, but it was his most treasured possession. Its very presence in the tool-shed was a secret and fearful joy to be kept scrupulously from the knowledge of the woman, as he had privately dubbed his cousin. And one day, out of heaven knows what material, he spun the beast a wonderful name, and from that moment it grew into a god and a religion. The woman indulged in religion once a week at a church nearby, and took Conradin with her. But to him, the church service was an alien rite in the house of Ramon. Every Thursday, in the dim and musty silence of the tool-shed, he worshipped with mystic and elaborate ceremonial before the wooden hutch where dwelt Shredni Vashtar the great ferret. Red flowers in their season and scarlet berries in the wintertime were offered at his shrine, for he was a god who laid some special stress on the fierce, impatient side of things, as opposed to the woman's religion, which, as far as Conradin could observe, went to great lengths in the contrary direction. And on great festivals, powdered nutmeg was strewn in front of his hutch, an important feature of their offering being that the nutmeg had to be stolen. These festivals were of irregular occurrence, and were chiefly appointed to celebrate some passing event. On one occasion, when Miss Durop suffered from acute toothache for three days, Conradin kept up the festival during the entire three days, and almost succeeded in persuading himself that Shredni Vashtar was personally responsible for the toothache. If the malady had lasted for another day, the supply of nutmeg would have given out. The Uden hen was never drawn into the cult of Shredni Vashtar.
Conradin had long ago settled that she was an Anabaptist. He did not pretend to have the remotest knowledge as to what an Anabaptist was, but he privately hoped that it was dashing and not very respectable. Mr. Ropp was the ground plan on which he based and detested all respectability. After a while, Conradin's absorption in the tool shed began to attract the notice of his guardian. It is not good for him to be pottering down there in all weathers, she promptly decided. And at breakfast one morning, she announced that the Udan hen had been sold and taken away overnight. With her short-sighted eyes, she peered at Conradin, waiting for an outbreak of rage and sorrow which she was ready to rebuke with a flow of excellent precepts of reasoning. But Conradin said nothing. There was nothing to be said. Something, perhaps, in his white, set face gave her a momentary qualm. For at tea that afternoon, there was toast on the table, a delicacy which she usually banned on the ground that it was bad for him. Also, because the making of it gave trouble, a deadly offense in the middle-class feminine eye. I thought you liked toast, she exclaimed, with an injured air, observing that he did not touch it. Sometimes, said Conradin. In the shed that evening, there was an innovation in the worship of the hutch god. Conradin had been wont to chant his praises. Tonight he asked a boon. Do one thing for me, Sredni Vashtar. The thing was not specified. As Sredni Vashtar was a god, he must be supposed to know. And choking back a sob as he looked at the other empty corner, Conradin went back to the world he so hated. And every night in the welcome darkness of his bedroom, and every evening in the dusk of the tool shed, Conradin's bitter litany went up, Do one thing for me, Shredni Vashtar. Miss Durop noticed that the visits to the shed did not cease, and one day she made a further journey of inspection. What are you keeping in that locked hutch? she asked. I believe it's guinea pigs. I'll have them all cleared away. Conradin shut his lips tight, but the woman ransacked his bedroom till she found the carefully hidden key and forthwith marched down to the shed to complete her discovery. It was a cold afternoon, and Conradin had been bidden to keep to the house. From the furthest window of the dining room, the door of the shed could be just seen beyond the corner of the shrubbery, and there Conradin stationed himself. He saw the woman enter, and then he imagined her opening the door of the sacred hutch and peering down with her short-sighted eyes into the thick straw bed where his god lay hidden. Perhaps she would prod at the straw in her clumsy impatience and Conradin fervently breathed his prayer, 
for the last time. But he knew, as he prayed, that he did not believe. He knew that the woman would come out presently with that pursed smile he loathed so well on her face, and that, in an hour or two, the gardener would carry away his wonderful god, a god no longer, but a simple brown ferret in a hutch. And he knew that the woman would triumph always as she triumphed now and that he would grow ever more sickly under her pestering and domineering and superior wisdom, till one day nothing would matter much more with him, and the doctor would be proved right. And in the sting and misery of his defeat, he began to chant loudly and defiantly the hymn of his threatened idol. Sreddi Vashtar went forth, his thoughts were red thoughts, and his teeth were white. His enemies called for peace, but he brought them death. Sredni Vashtar, the beautiful. And then, all of a sudden, he stopped his chanting and drew closer to the window pane. The door of the shed still stood ajar as it had been left, and the minutes were slipping by. They were long minutes, but they slipped by nevertheless. He watched the starlings running and flying in little parties across the lawn. He counted them over and over again, with one eye always on that swinging door. A sour-faced maid came in to lay the table for tea, and still Conradin stood and waited and watched. Hope had crept by inches into his heart, and now a look of triumph began to blaze in his eyes that had only known the wistful patience of defeat. Under his breath, with a furtive exultation, he began once again the paean of victory and devastation. And presently his eyes were rewarded. Out through that doorway came a long, low, yellow and brown beast, with eyes a-blink at the waning daylight, and dark, wet stains around the fur of its jaws and throat. Conradin dropped on his knees. The great polecat ferret made its way down to a small brook at the foot of the garden, drank for a moment, then crossed a little plank bridge and was lost to sight in the bushes. Such was the passing of Sredni Vashtar. Tea's ready, said the sour-faced maid. Where's the mistress? She went down to the shed some time ago, said Conrad. And while the maid went to summon her mistress to tea, Conradin fished a toasting fork out of a sideboard drawer and proceeded to toast himself a piece of bread. And during the toasting of it, and the buttering of it, with much butter and the slow enjoyment of eating it, Conradin listened to the noises and silences which fell in quick spasms beyond the dining-room door. The loud, foolish screaming of the maid the answering chorus of 
wondering ejaculations from the kitchen region, the scuttering footsteps and hurried embassies for outside help. And then, after a lull, the scared sobbings and the shuffling tread of those who bore a heavy burden into the house. Whoever will break it to the poor child? I couldn't for the life of me, exclaimed a shrill voice. And while they debated the matter among themselves, Conradin made himself another piece of toast. Well, that was our story. I hope you enjoyed it. Whether you're a Udan hen, a bitchy cousin, a disturbed little boy, or a sour-faced maid, I think we can all draw an important lesson from this tale. Toast is bad for you. Well, that's all the Drabble for this week. Tune in next week for episode 20 of the Drabblecast. Send in your haikus and your stories of under 2,000 words to goatkeeper at hotmail.com. Comment on the website if you like today's story, and be sure to tell a friend or two about the Drabblecast. I'm your host, Norm Sherman, reminding you that it's important to be tolerant of all mammalia-centric, weasel-theistic religious beliefs. Laughter and curses spilled like booze from a glass. Words were all slurred when spoke. Yes, words were all splurred when spoke. In the dark corner table sits Lance Fernandez, the boss, and as women surround him like clothing, all tussled. Every five minutes, a transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price, and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.